Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is June 5th, and we're going to be talking about um, really something I think we've both been thinking about for a long time, which is just sort of how like reading and writing sort of change in this sort of era of quote-unquote post-truth that we see. Post-truthiness. So we're going to kind of talk about how that affects the reading experience and perhaps down the line the writing experience as writers kind of react to this age. But um, before we get to that heady topic, why don't we get the basics? Absolutely. So it is June, everybody. Congratulations. You made it to June. (laughs) We're all alive. (laughs) We're all alive. Uh, We have three special episodes this month. Three? This is is the first month with three. Man. So this Thursday, June 8th, our query show is going to be going live. Mm -hmm. So if you want us to critique your query, send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Then -hmm. we have our special writing by reading episode going live the next Thursday, June 15th. And then our first pages show, which we will also be critiquing your first page um, on June 22nd, also a Thursday, Eric. Mm. Um, so send that to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So uh, should we talk for a second about writing by reading we should, one more time? Because um, I'm very excited I know. About it's it. exciting. So um, like we've kind of talked about on prior episodes, um, we're releasing a new special episode this month. It's called Writing by Reading. And basically what we're going to do is uh, take a passage um, through some published work and really kind of just work through it, look at it and Get talk into it. Yeah, exactly. And talk about ways in which, you know, like basically break down why it's working, right? What makes this so good? What makes it so memorable? Why is everyone talking about this book and this particular bit of this book? And hopefully what it lends itself to is really, really specific writing advice as opposed to the broad kind of um, you know, bland axioms. Show that we, don't tell. Yeah, exactly. Just like whatever kind of lame thing that you get told every single conference you go to, we're going to try to cut through that by using specifics and passages that maybe like, you know, you want to emulate because so much of writing is, you know, reading and trying to, um, you know, take things from the writers we respect and love. Um, but we've picked our first passage. We sure and, have. <laughs> and I'm really excited about it because I think that it's one – that ever like we'll say what it is and everyone's going to know what it is. You know what I mean? It's and on it's, the brain right now. It's like it's on the brain. It's coming up. It's something that I think most of our listeners have heard if not that it's it's surely something I don't know. It's a it's a piece in a little specific bit of a book that I think has really occupied a lot of minds from a lot of people who love this show. Um and the t- book and the book And the series. books and the book series itself. Should we tell them what it is? Yeah. It's The Red Wedding. We're going to pick um, that very iconic moment in the third book of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire series. Um, By George R.R. Martin. (laughs) Um, It's really, um, you know, we wanted to go there first because it's really treated, I think, as one of the more interesting and watershed moments in... It was um, a game changer. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, that was the moment where people were like, wow, this series is really something. And I remember like when it happened in the television show, right? Like people lost their fucking minds. People right? who didn't know it was coming because, yeah, and then exactly. the people who knew it, were it was coming like were like, divide. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, it, so anyway, that, but that's kind of in the spirit of what we want to do with this concept, right? Is just take some passage that really, really landed successfully and really, really kind of 
gave writers and readers alike something to think about. And we, the first thing that came to mind for our audience and and for us, it was uh, the Red Wedding. So we're going to pick that bit out of uh, a Storm of Swords. Is that what that book is? Yeah, it's yeah. also going to be really good for all of you to get like hyped for the TV show <laughs> exactly, coming yeah, back for season back. seven. Um, we should do a Game of Thrones episode. I think coming we will. Up on, but... I think I keep keep your eyes peeled <laughs> or your ears peeled. I don't know what the expression is for radio, yeah. but. Um, Keep your ear to the ground for right before season seven premieres. We might do something pretty fun. But but anyway, um, yeah, join us on on June fifteenth when we kind of we get bloody when we talk about and work through some of George R. R. Martin's writing because he sure isn't doing it himself. <laughs> <laughs> or no, he is doing it himself. He's it's, not doing it quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, but anyway, if you're if you're a Thrones fan and you're a writer, um, we think you'll really enjoy that bit. And, One thing I want to mention, yeah. is that all of these special episodes uh-huh. are available on Patreon. Yeah. Um, so you have to be a supporter of Print Run mm-hmm. on Patreon.com uh-huh. to get access to this. So the uh, the writing by reading series is if you're already getting the first pages episodes at the $10 a month level, you're going to have access to the writing by reading. Yeah. So head on over there. We've got links on Twitter and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I'm really I'm really excited awesome. about it. So it was a very big week in uh-huh. publishing mm-hmm. this week. Mm-hmm. It was Book Expo America, or I think it's just Book Expo now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's no A anymore in BEA. It's no longer um, for the America. Yeah. Um, so what this is this is the big like premier trade show of the yeah. year, right? Yeah. Eric, what did you do during BEA weekend? Oh, I mean not go to BEA was <laughs> was the first thing I didn't do. I don't know. I read a bunch of queries and, you know, read manuscripts and did kind of boring work things instead of hang with the beautiful people. Um, how about you? Um, I made really good friends with my living room couch. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I was rear-ended the other week, and Ugh. so that's, like, the only place I can go. Like, I think I was actually, like, texting you, and I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> like, I can no yeah. longer see the red couch. So anyway, yeah. um, BEA weekend was a real thrill for us, <laughs> <laughs> as it was for those in attending. Um it will be hard to decide who had a better time, them or us. But um, <laughs> that, that that has been this installment of what we did instead of BEA. Um, However, I, Minnesota has been interesting yeah. very recently yeah. for the people in books. And it's um, not just because of my couch sitting <laughs> this weekend. So it's time to introduce America to a hero I didn't know I had, to a really an American literary icon, to my mind. Um, and that is Mr. Brian Sonia Wallace, um, who is in the news this week because his writer residence starts um, the first week of June right now. Um, and Laura, tell, tell, tell the world why uh, Mr. Sonia Wallace is famous. Well, Eric, <laughs> our wonderful friend Brian, friend uh, of the podcast. Oh, he is now. I want um, him on the show. I'm going to. Well, he's here. He's in the Twin we Cities. Go, we should go find him. We should. Yeah. The mall, the mall is perfect for this. So he won the writer residency at the Mall of America, which is located in Bloomington, Minnesota. So what did you just go real quick? The writing residence at the Mall of America. What, which you is just, the biggest mall. Well, you just go in there and you just write and you just stay in the mall forever. Yeah, it's like five days <laughs> of like being here. So yeah. Y- yeah, mm-hmm. he like he's like in the Mall of America. It's for their twenty fifth anniversary. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's about him, like it's it's gonna be him interacting with the people and and the yeah. and the commerce, 
and just kind of like he's a poet, so he's going to be writing poetry from the mall. on his typewriter. Yeah, yeah. on his typewriter. typewriter. He has a typewriter. Of he's on a goddamn typewriter. Yeah. Um, so, but one one thing that's great about Brian and the reason he's made it onto this program is not just because he's won this particularly strange writer residency, but because he's won others. Um, he won the Amtrak. <laughs> he won residency. the Amtrak residency, where you basically just ri- rode around on trains, and like everyone hated it because they like wouldn't even give you your own private space, and they had to like shut it down. <laughs> they just like stuck you on a train car. I think car they also had write. in the. I think uh, they also had in the fine print that they owned your work at the end. <laughs> yeah, of it. yeah, exactly. Um, but he and, did that. So he did that. He also um, had a. He also had a residency through the National Park Service, and he even had a residency through Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> What? So basically this dude <laughs> – he wrote a poem. He wrote a poem for them. Oh, God. Um, so basically this dude is just Mr. Apply for the weird writing residencies, um, wherever they are, whoever's putting them on. And I I love it. I think it's great. And I can't wait to see what oh, works. Oh, he wrote a haiku <laughs> column for the com- for the Dollar Shave Club's email <laughs> newsletter. This oh, is Jesus. what Brian Sonia Wallace did. He's also – this isn't a writer's residency, but yeah. it feels kind of close. Um, he was invited to a conference for investment bankers, and he was hired there to write poems for the investment bankers' wives. <laughs> So um, this guy is just looking for gigs wherever he can find it. And, like, I personally – Good for him. um, I have so much respect for this. I think that this is great because it cuts against everything that we have talked about um, as not necessarily being conducive to good writing on this show, right? Like, he's just done away with pretense and prestige and these notions of programs and, like, really, like, glossy-looking residencies. And it just said, okay, who is going to pay – to have me like let them use their air conditioning while I write <laughs> on and, a typewriter. On a typewriter, I think it's great. And so he keeps applying for stuff and he keeps winning. And I don't know. To he, me, he won out of four thousand people at yeah. the Mall of America. <laughs> four thousand so, people applied to be a writer yeah. in residence at the MOA. Yeah. To me, he's the uh, um, he's a real American literary hero, and I wish him all the best. And I can't wait. To, I hope that we get to see what what he writes at the end of. His stay at the mall, where I honestly I can't even go in there for like three hours without like wishing for death. Really? Yeah. When was the last time you went to Mall of America? Um. So here's my secret. Yeah. I go now. I go there now with my fiance, and we go. But as soon as we go in, we immediately get a buzz on. You just start drinking right yes. away. Where do you drink? Uh, not at even... any of the restaurants. <laughs> so you you immediately uh, like shotgun two beers, except you don't really shotgun because I'm not in college anymore. Uh, it sounds like you, it sounds yeah. Um, so you immediately just like you like have a nice time at the bar and then you get like a little fuzzy and then you just walk around yeah. and you like buy your fancy artisan honey from the honey store, mm. which is something we did like two weekends ago when we went to the Mall of America on a Saturday. Um, I hope that he buys artisan honey when he's looking I for inspiration, like when he's doing when he's like doing a lap. I assume at some point he's going to need yeah. to do a lap. The, my best part is that we were walking around with an artisan honey bag, and then uh-huh. we went into, like, the artisan liquor store. Yeah. And then the person who was working there was like, you got that from Sam, didn't you? And they, like, <laughs> knew each other. And I was like, good. this mall is huge. How good. do you know each other? That's good. Anyway. But this this residency has had me thinking yeah. about other fun writers' residencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a little bit of Googling. Uh-huh. Um, what else we got? So one thing that I found, which I really, really liked. 
So the Amtrak one, of course, is like the best one, but it was shut down. It got shut down, yeah, because like they tried they, to own your. They work. offered terrible terms, and they made you ride around on a shitty train, like. And they didn't even give you a bed. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they gave you a bed, but they didn't like give you like a bathroom. Yeah. Um, but here's one that I really like. Um, it's through the Alaskan Forest Service. So uh-huh. It's like a government writers writers residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what it is. It's it's really for the people who like are a writer, but they really just want to be a forest ranger. Yeah, that's me. So instead of like just being in the wilderness and being kind of secluded and writing like yeah. most residencies are, yeah. um, what they do is they pair you, and this can be like visual artists, film artists, writing, whatever. They pair you with a forest ranger in the Alaskan wilderness and you go around and like help in like ecological like studies and like do quote unquote light ranger duties. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one thing that I think is really key from these writer residencies is you could absolutely like if you were like a company that just like needed another employee, you could definitely <laughs> just like pretend that you were offering a writer residency and then just have the dude like come work for you. So there's for a one while. there's one that I found that I wasn't gonna mention yeah. on the show because it's specifically for visual artists uh-huh. and we're not for those people. Just kidding. Uh actually we're really not. Um but it was for shipping containers. So, like, here's here's what it is. Yeah. So this woman was, like, I think she was in, like, Hong Kong or something, and she needed to get to somewhere else. And the airfare was too expensive. And so she booked passage on, a f- like, a freight boat with that, like, carried shipping containers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, those things that now, like, really rich people are turning into houses. I didn't know the Shipping containers. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a story for So, So day, basically you're, like – a crew member mm-hmm. on these sh- and so there's there are these visual artist residencies every year now where you basically like go around the world in shipping container boats mm-hmm. so that one's really fun but that one's not for us um another one that i found is for the brisbane airport yeah you just go hang out in the airport yeah right? unfortunately they're a little bit more specific <laughs> about who they want yeah. so they they've had a couple of these yeah um they're, the Brisbane Airport artist in residence kind of like hangs out for well, Just it depends the on the project for like for yeah. like a month, I think, or something like that. Um, Sounds like me and LaGuardia, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's the best part. So this year they're not looking for a writer, unfortunately, uh-huh. because this year they're looking for a right. Wait for it, Lego artist. They are looking. <laughs> For a some dude who can build with Legos, a brick artist. This is a direct yeah. quote. Who will be? Uh, oh, who will be contracted for twelve months? Twelve months. That is so long. So twelve months, and it's not a full time position, but is an opportunity to receive payment for something you love to do. Wow. Um, an opportunity to receive payment for something you love to do is how everyone in publishing has been fucked for pay. And there will be a background <laughs> check. Um, yeah, so they want you to build large-scale pieces for them to display in their airport. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah, so it's really funny. I don't know why, but it says that a Brisbane driver's license is strongly recommended. Well, yeah, I'm, I, it's like I said, they're just going to send you on weird tasks, like – when they're just going to make you a resident and then just have you, like, do a bunch of stuff and then say, well, on your break, also write us some poems. 
like, then that's how they're gonna pay you by demanding that you write poems while you're on your break. Yeah. And otherwise it's just like indentured servitude or something. Yeah. It's like um, it's like what was that one Tom Hanks movie where he was like stuck in an airport and he had to like live there? Yeah. Because like his country didn't exist when it's he like flew. if that guy wrote poems. That's exactly. like exactly <laughs> on like an old typewriter and also liked Legos. Yeah. Um so writer residencies, you should apply. But I will say though, like, um, we're making fun of it, but I am so into what this what this Brian fellow is doing I, because I just think it's so great the idea that he's just finding chance after chance after chance for someone to just you know help him and pay him for a little bit for his writing you know like and so many poets I think, think that they're they just resign themselves to like I will never make money from this well so many everybody uh, yeah to, I mean I guess it's kind of po- poetry based but like. That's true of a lot of different types of writing. And or I just, arts in general. Yeah, I like that this guy is willing to actually go do his art regardless of where it is. And, I mean, apparently he's good because he keeps winning this stuff. So I think um, we should go to the Mall of America yeah, and we search go for a him. man I need to go a, meet my hero. in a flat um, cap with a, with a typewriter. <laughs> Maybe he'll be a Chipotle. Yeah, I would be. Panda Express? Um, yeah. So should we, should we get into it? I think we can stop talking about Brian. Brian, we're coming for you, like in a good way, in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. We've been thinking a lot. Um, Specifically, I've been thinking about climate change um, with with the whole Paris Accords and us pulling out of the Paris Accords or whatever. I've been thinking a lot about the discourse that now exists of – People just like not believing in things that are demonstrably true. Yeah. Um, and I, I was, I was thinking about that, and I, and I was, I was, I'm, I've been, I've been really meditating on what that means for readers and writers about like now. I feel like I, I don't feel like people are believing different things than they are now, yeah. or than they were previously. Yeah. But I feel like now it's okay to like be a walnut and like not like not believe in something. Yeah. Um, And now that that has entered public discourse, I feel like that's fundamentally changing the way we're talking about content and we're reading books. Well, sure. So, I mean, I think just to like set the table here a little bit, um, you know, what you're referring to is kind of what we all sort of intuitively sense right now in our political climate, in our um, just our culture right now, this idea of anyone's truth being true, right? Like alternative facts. If you don't like what you have, you can go find a different set that will match you, you know, perfectly well. Um, you know, media bubbles and things and where you can basically, you know, believe whatever you want to at this point about any sort of person, about any sort of scientific topic, about whatever it is and how – and I guess, you know, like you were saying, that's always been true, right? It like, always has been, yeah. There's, there have always been those places where you can be whatever kind of theorist you want um, regardless of what objective reality will tell you. But um, those viewpoints have suddenly found themselves in a strange amount of power all of a sudden, right? right. Like, And so I think what you're saying here and where I think our conversation is going to go is toward this idea that, you know, when you plunge the mainstream world into that kind of culture – and that sort of just belief where like, you know, I think you put it to me earlier today really well, um, that your feelings are just as important as someone else's facts. You yeah. know, when that happens and that becomes just kind of commonplace, that affects how we consume things. And consumption to me, first and foremost, means reading. 
So I think before we get into talking about specifically how things are changing um, based on how people are exposed to information and people and how people are yeah. processing information is to talk more specifically about what it really means when somebody reads a book. Yeah. Um, so we we talk a lot on this podcast about books being in conversation with other books mm-hmm. or like stories being in conversation with a a related history. Yeah. Um, we've talked specifically about um, in previous episodes about vampires and about how Stephanie Meyer broke the mold by ch- fundamentally changing what um, what vampires are sure. in, in such a way that made Anne Rice very, very mad at her. And in <laughs> fact, there was a feud in 2011 between the two of them specifically because these two texts were being compared by readers. Right. Um, everything you read exists in relation to everything else you've read. Right. And, and kind of the easiest way to talk about this is to talk about, you know, like speculative fiction. Sure. And to talk about like mythological and um <clears throat> and historical bases for things um so you know it's why people get really mad that something is too like tolkien or too far away from tolkien yeah um and so nobody nobody disputes that that books are when when books are consumed by somebody like when books are truly books when they're read mm-hmm. um they are all of a sudden in conversation with not only the books that are related to this book that the person has read before but they're also in conversation with a reader's personal experience. They're also in conversation with um, other media that is consumed, movies, TV shows, <coughs> magazines, et cetera. Yeah. And also just fundamentally like the way that the world is and like the other information that is like hitting this reader. Yeah. Um, and so – Well, so that last bit about information, mm-hmm. I think that that's a key one when thinking about – and this would even be true – I think even apart from, um, you know, let, like let's say that what all this stuff that's kind of happened over the last 20 months, the last, you know, five months, however, whatever you want to set your little benchmark at, um, even if none of that stuff had happened, you've still got a really brand new era of just information overload and access at all times, right? And if we're talking about, um, writers being cognizant of who their readers are, mm-hmm. right? And like writing a book, thinking how is this going to be received by the person whose job it is to experience it? Um, you have to, I think that there's a certain point there that um, readers are different now because readers are now constantly inundated from all sides, from social media, yeah. from news sites, from television, from everywhere with viewpoints and opinions and um, just constant stimulus, right? Like an overwhelming amount of stimulus. Oh, and yeah. the, what I think is happening now is that <laughs> a lot less of a proportion of it is true, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're, so you're getting a lot of like, I think this. But yeah, but like, so, but apart from that, and that's a whole separate conversation, um, that affects readers, is it what does. you're saying. It does. Um, so one thing I was thinking about is this is a very terrible, dumb example. But one thing I was thinking about. Um, is that really bad Jake Gyllenhaal movie, The Day After Tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one where like... <laughs> that's the, the disaster movie. Yeah, yeah, the one where like wolves suddenly <clears throat> gain sentience, uh-huh. right? Um, n- that's not actually the plot of the book. That's just like there are evil wolves. That That is what I remember about it. Uh-huh. But so so the concept of this movie, and it was like came out like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. The concept of this movie is that global warming 
has created this weather event that the entire eastern seaboard is like under this gigantic storm. Yeah. And that there's this big ice storm and then Jake Gyllenhaal is at like a United Nations, mm. like the mock UN, whatever. I don't know what it's called. Sure. Model UN. There we go. I had to get there. Um, and he's like a he's like a kid and he like gets stuck there and then he fights some wolves and like eventually gets rescued. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I was thinking of was like, Man, if that movie was made today, there would ha- instead of being like, well, global warming has caused this, it would have to be a line such as, well, it turns out that global warming is true and it has caused this. So what I what I mean by that is not necessarily that the the fundamental premise of this very dumb movie has changed, but that uh that a uh, that looking at it as a text, it will have acknowledged the the like prevalent discourse of the time in a certain way. Well, even that I feel like maybe even sells that idea short because um, what that is conspicuously missing is um, obviously a whole lot of stoked debate about, you know, climate change denial, right? And so like maybe what you're getting at here um, is just this idea that when the debate changes, the movies about the topics in the debates also change, you know? And so, like, if someone were to make some disaster movie now, there would certainly have to be some element of, um, you know, some people kind Ha-ha, of – I was right. People – or, yeah, like, the just the argument itself. We should talk for a second then about, um, you know, like, we just kind of painted this picture of, you know, overstimulated people, like, kind of feeling kind of scared. We, we should um, – you know, if we're going to make the point that – reading is different now that or like maybe reading itself isn't different but the conditions under which we are reading are different we should sort of think about a little bit about like okay well what actually is different like what and this you know kind of gets to that question that i think we're eventually going to get to which is like what might books from this age start to look like Mm -hmm. you know and i think a key part in figuring that out is like starting with the raw ingredients and to me so i did some thinking today on like Right. What's like what is what are the characteristics of like the national mood? Like if you're thinking about your readership, if you're a writer and you're thinking, okay, what are my readers thinking about? Um, There are some it's not necessarily like specific issues that I think are going to really resonate, but rather like traits. Like, for instance, like I feel like everyone right now has some sort of conspiracy theory <laughs> right now, right? Like, the, and, yeah. and what, I, what I mean by that, maybe that was a little vague. What I mean by that is, like, we're all, like, just waiting for the other shoe to drop on something. this, like, on something, right? Like, on this Russia stuff, on impeachment talks, on, you know, whatever issue it is that you're, like, into. Like, everyone is, like, waiting, watching this news happen day by day, just waiting with bated breath, like, you know, people, I feel like, are, I don't know, like, I, the, what I want to say is that I feel like everyone's losing their damn minds, <laughs> you know? I mean, you're and not wrong. You go, you go online and you look at the things that, like, people are talking about and, like, the things that are, like, retweeting onto your feed and the things that um, people are just, like, generally thinking about. And it's like, people are nuts now. And it's like, it's bread. And I don't necessarily blame them for that because we live in this age, like like we've said, that you, you can't really trust anything because the truth doesn't really even mean the truth anymore. Like you were saying, and I think this is critical to, um, you know, books, right? Like just like the standard relationships of cause and effect don't hold up anymore. They don't. Like something – like we've been kind of conditioned to believe that when, you know, especially in like – you know, on kind of a national scale and like a political scale, when X happens, Y should happen, you know? And that, has, that hasn't that has been true in any regard 
for over a year now, you know, yeah. for a very long time. It's like we keep having our expectations for how things work overturned and overturned and overturned. And so, of course, people are going to get like paranoid or like, disen- you know, disenchanted with um, just like the rules or like <laughs> how anything works. Right. And and on top of this, like feeling of just like nihilism, you know, or um, yeah, all this stuff, it's it's just, uh, you know, you can't turn it off. Yeah, you know the it's volume is hours. just constantly on. You can never so, log off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when, lo- when never logging off goes wrong, um, but like that, that. No, I'm serious though. Like that is a thing, and that's going to change the way you read because it's just consumption, consumption, consumption. And like, I don't know. I was. It kind of occurred. I just watched the last season of House of Cards. Right. Okay. Which I've is, never seen House of sure, Cards. Sure. Okay. But it's like, you know, I mean, it doesn't take that much to explain. It's just like basic crazy political stuff, it's right? It's Kevin Spacey yeah. and Robin Wright being crazy right. on TV. Kevin Spacey tries to, you know, be president, that sort of thing. Um, but I remember watching the first season like five years ago and be like, man, this is like, you know, it was it was really exciting, right? It had yeah. me on the edge of my seat. And now I watched this last season, which in terms of like plot points – is like way crazier, you know. Like things are just nuts in this show. Like beyond. Can well, you give me an example? Well, like he like Without, starts. A, yeah, okay. <laughs> he starts a war, in or he sends troops into Syria, purely so that. Um, what's the reason he does it? I don't know. He sends it in to, um, like, fix his poll numbers or something. You know, some crazy thing like that. And sure, it's. Um, I'm not even surprised by that, well, by that, the way. that literally fucking happened in the real world, like, last... You know what I mean? But it's... <laughs> that's an exaggeration. Um, but the point is that what used to what used to really feel like giant, crazy, wild plot points now feel kind of normal and boring. They don't register. And... Their implausibility has gone away. Like, what does plausibility yeah. even mean anymore? You know, like, what's not plausible? What, yeah. you know, and what... And... I've been I've been seeing a lot of stuff on my TL because I never log off about um, all of these political shows, which I don't watch, um, not yeah. for any specific reason, but I just have not watched. And it, they're all suffering like ratings drops. And yes, it's because, because a lot of people are thinking that they pulled something from the headlines where in reality they they wrote and and recorded these episodes eight months ago. Well, even that I think is too much. Even that is giving. That's even that's too sophisticated of a thought of what's happening to me. Like what I think is happening is it's just no longer that entertaining when the real world is providing so much constant stimulus. Like I could turn on CNN and see way more of like theory mongering than mm. I would by turning on. So a question, and, a question for you. Yeah. So we've been talking specifically about political fiction. Sure. But on a on a kind of like larger note, yeah. do you think that the way people are currently consuming information and the way that yeah. we're living now yeah. is inoculating the reader to like a plot twist. Yeah, no, I do. I think that's a great. I think that's a great way to put it. It's like all the little tricks that writers used to rely on. It's like there are these little buttons of you know endorphins, right? Like some you know you do this thing and you get a little kind of like release of chemicals, you know, and none of the buttons work anymore. You know what I mean? Like we've mashed all the buttons to pieces. None of them work and we're all overstimulated. We're not getting little and, treats exactly. in our food bowl. No, really. But like, and that's kind of how I think about it. And what's interesting that's happening, and I think why it relates to books so strongly, and I know we've kind of gotten into like television and other stuff, but it's everyone keeps wanting to map all this stuff onto stories. 
You know, like we we've talked a million times on this show about people using like literature as like an analogy for what's happening, right? And we've talked about why it's yeah. faulty at times and why it's good at other times. But what it really is is that people have always tried to use books and stories to make sense of the world. Right. You know? And to reflect the and, world. Yeah. Right. And so when things when things go nuts, this is the first place they're going to go, and that reading experience is changing. You know, um, you know, A Handmaid's Tale doesn't feel wild and out there anymore. You know, <laughs> House of Cards doesn't feel like this beyond the pale political thriller. It just feels kind of like boring. <laughs> so my and, my question to you then is, do you think that writers are going to like double down, or do you think they're just going to be like, maybe we'll do something that's kind of like utopian and like kind of nice? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that – so, I don't know. We live kind of in an age of, you know, dystopian fiction, right? Like it's – It's really hot you know, right now. There's a lot of – stuff. you know, everything's dystopian. And we've talked – you know, like YA is obviously very dystopian. Um, but, what, you know, dystopia, I think – and you can um, contest me on this if you'd like – but it sort of crops up when there are warning signs, right? Like a dystopian novel in a lot of ways is like a cautionary tale or it's like a commentary on something that could happen. It's like, you know, the logical extension of some truth the writer sees in the world pushed to an extreme, yeah. right? When you live in an age, and whether whether it is or not is not really the debate here, but a lot of people really feel like we live in an extreme right now. Right. Like dystopian fiction better turn into something different because that prior use of showing us the extremes, it's not necessarily as quote-unquote useful anymore, you know, because we are living in what readers, what your readers are perceiving as an extreme. And so when you get into these conditions, like, people are going to start to like different stuff. And what I where I think that ends up getting is people are going to start to write different stuff. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I was, I was kind of thinking, like, what is a Trump-era book gonna look like because we haven't really seen any well we have they're starting to come you know like i think like this um you know this fall you know you'll start to get a few and um you know it's obviously on the nonfiction side everybody kind of raced to write their whatever election book election book or whatever but um you know like the real like novels that'll be remembered from this era i don't know that they've i don't know that they've been written yet at least the ones that we associate directly with the political climate of you know the the time um, what do you think they're going to look like? Because well, I have some thoughts. Yeah. No, I mean, well, so why don't you start? I mean. So so my thing, and I think Eric touched on this a little bit before, is is kind of about consequences. So yeah. so like as an agent, as as somebody who edits books, I, I constantly talk to writers about the the consequences and like the implications yeah. of, of what has been done. Yeah. Actions, choices, inaction, et cetera. Right. Um, and I feel like previously there's been very much a A happens and then B happens and so C is the consequence. Right. And I that feel like – mechanism is the one that has just been hammered to pieces. It has. And so one <laughs> one thing that I'm yeah. thinking is, is, you know, and the easiest way to, way to do this is, you know, I um, – you know, I've been talking to a lot of writers recently about this, and a lot of them have said, you know, like, oh, this outlandish power story is no longer so outlandish. Um, and, you know, they're they're very interested, and the writers that I've spoken to are very interested in, like, believability. Yeah. Right? Um, and so here's, here's kind of... Can I ask you a question real yes. quick? About believability and yes. outlandishness? Yes. Do you like those things or dislike those things? 
<sighs> um, both. Because. So, well, oh, yeah. no, no, no. I want to hear your because. Well, I just mean like when I hear someone say, you know, in a query or something, well, this is just like what's happening in the real world. It's like, well, then I'll just go turn on the news. <laughs> like I don't necessarily love the idea that something is like a direct analog or directly derivative or like ripped from the headlines, you know. Like to me, I think that oftentimes people really view that as like a feature in in literature or something. And to me, that does, it doesn't quite resonate that much because like yeah. I'd rather see you take – something and show me something different show me something i'm not already seeing everywhere else yeah. i guess is i guess i love implausibility when it yeah. comes to things that don't exist in this world like magic and yeah. and you yeah. know stuff like that um but what i require believability in yeah and, th- and this comes down to being able to relate your like yeah. your audience to relate to your book and to experience your book yeah. and to have that kind of like yeah. personal reading of it is when it comes to the humanity yeah, of your see, characters and that's where yeah, that is critical, and that's where you're going to see the hallmark traits of books from this era. The 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 humanity kind of like it's it's shifting a little bit yeah. because before you know it was there was an easier line from action to consequence or choice mm-hmm. to consequence, right? And I feel like now that that's no longer a given for a reader. Yeah, I feel like in order to continue to draw those lines of humanity about like this person killed my father and so I feel this, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, to continue to draw <laughs> those lines and continue to engage your audience, I feel like we're going to be entering into a period of books that explain a lot more. Interesting. So, so why? So what do you mean by that? So. Because I'm not sure that I agree. <laughs> that's okay. Um, you're not. You're not necessarily supposed to. So <laughs> what I what I mean by that is, is it, when I say explain, I don't mean necessarily like going through all of the reasons that something happened. Yeah. What I mean by that is more like spending time um, acknowledging the 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 process and kind of like going through why a choice resulted in this, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, kind of using using a larger cultural narrative to feed into the choices more rather than like sticking it on like yeah. the human, right. the, the human center. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like books that are going to be talking about political things are going to need to explain what is the specifics of the situation more now, Um, you know, like a book about climate change that's like talking about, you know, people living in like dystopia or whatever of, of some sort of like hot earth where there are no coral reefs. Like, I feel like they're going to have to nod their hat in some sort of way to climate change deniers in a way that I don't know if a book yeah. you know, published five years ago sure. would have had to do that. Like, I feel like it's going to have to tip its hat a little bit more explicitly towards the current cultural climate and climate um, in a way that hasn't necessarily been needed thus sure. far. Sure. Um, I, guess, I guess I see what you're saying. I almost wonder if the exact opposite really? is going to happen. Talk me well, through that. Well, so because the one thing that I've learned this you know, like kind of just trying to grapple with these things, you know, that are happening today. And I'm someone who certainly feels, um, you know, just that that all of us feel right now, right? Just that disenchantment with like our institutions, our leaders, like 
any all the stuff we thought was supposed to just like uphold like all these various <laughs> principles have just like fallen away as like made of paper, you know. The constitution and, gets in the way. You know Eric. what I mean? Like all this kind of like or that just feeling that like like we were saying, there's that cause and effect that yeah. when this happens, this should be the result. And you see, you know, throughout um, you know, his candidacy and his rise to power and all the stuff that's kind of happened since every single day we got something, well, he did this and now this is what's gonna happen. And every single day what happened. Nothing. Not the thing they said was yeah, going to happen. Absolutely and in fa- the opposite. And in fact, nothing. And in fact, with that nothingness came no explanation for why not. Yeah. There was no – we were not given – you know, the reality owed us no plausibility. It owed us no explanation. It owed us no narrative. And that's, I think, the part that relates so much uh, to books. It's like, you know, news coverage and reporting and all this stuff, it, ke- it kept trying to paint – this story, right, mm. that made sense, that had characters and plot points and all these things. And it was all supposed to, you know, add up to this conclusion. You could just tell they were like waiting to just, they'd already written it, right? Because yeah. like, they already knew how this one was going to end, except it never did. And it never, it never even really ended. You know what I mean? Just all the principles of storytelling that we use to kind of inform our lives, whether it's our like personal relationships, whether it's our, um, you know, relationship with our politics or our, you know, state or whatever, um, they've all, I feel like they've really come under suspect and we've had to kind of really um, evaluate what all those bits of those uh, levers of cause and effect um, that are obviously so key to what fiction is and to what stories are. Um, so you feel like they're going like, to be doing less explaining? I like, yeah. No, I feel like, I feel like if I'm trying to write a book, that really captures this moment, you know, later mm. on down the line after we can really clearly see it. And I am one of those people that maintains that um, we aren't clearly seeing it yet, you know. Like I think that the really great novels about this era are – that it's going to take some time because this era is not concluding yeah. – it's not concluded being what it is. But I think that the thing to capture is that noise. It's just that sense of just nonsensical noise at the expense of any plausibility whatsoever. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that I'm not saying that plots will all of a sudden Go not make wayside. sense. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the thing to capture to me is just that like sense of paranoia, you know, that sense that, you know, just that ever-present nervousness that the thing that you think is a given is not a given anymore. Mm. You know? That the thing that you relied on to be something that you needed it to be isn't. You can't really or be that, a plot manipulator in the same you way. You can't. Like, I, yeah. I, and I think that, um, you know, just like, I don't know. Like, we've seen, you know, you'll, you'll get some novels and we've gotten some, you know, some very good ones that kind of capture specific, like, literal events of the moment. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, The Hate You Give is about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Like, something happening right now yeah. that's very topical that resonated in the manner that we're talking. But like, I also think that there's going to be books. Um, I don't know how possible, I guess, I don't know how possible more of those books are going to be on any kind of um, like trying to respond to this sort of level yeah. because what the real story isn't the literal events in a lot of these cases. It's this feeling that just this whole, that all everybody has that nothing makes any sense. 
I'm like a very, and obviously that sounds like super like punk rock or some dumb shit, (laughs) but like, but I mean on a very, and I'm, but I mean in a very specific manner that like, it just feels like the physics have changed. You know, it's like A plus B no longer equals C. I feel, I feel like the subtext in books is going to shift dramatically Yeah. because now. Well, the text is, it doesn't make any sense. Well, not only that, not only that, but like if you think about, um, people talking about politics right now and they say that you know the subtext of this action is this yeah there's no longer any subtext because like our president tweets it right and so like i'm i'm wondering if books are going to become less subtle in that and where it's where it's less about like sending the reader to like feel the answers in their heart and more like having to to like give them yeah. to the reader and give a bunch of answers to the reader and then having them choose yeah. rather than like find it themselves. Well, there is going to be a flip like that yeah. because all of – I mean it kind of gets back to what I was just saying, which is that all the things – like a reversal has happened. All the things we thought are supposed to be behind the scenes and hidden, all like for instance the <laughs> the inner monologue of the president <laughs> – is now out in the open. Like there's no – like all the things we thought that were kind of held behind, you know, the veal or, um, you know, kind of – we were kind of buffered from has been made f- to the forefront. And all the things that we thought we were supposed to be experiencing, you know, on kind of a more overt level, the text, if you will, all that stuff has gone missing and it's yeah. gone hidden, you know. And it's like with this flip has happened and I think you're right. Like it's going to affect um, – it's going to affect the way stories get told, I think, if, if people are really – I'm not even sure they're, they're going to have a choice. Like a writer growing up in this era, like, you know, we just talked, um, you know, reader experience. You know, you don't really get to pick how you experience a book. You just read. And so like um, – I, Yeah. I, I mean the thing is, is to be a good writer, you have to understand how your audience is going to be engaging with your text. Yeah. Because author intention – doesn't mean no. shit. Reader expectation like, does. Reader reader expectation and reader impressions matter because that's that's how your yeah. books really come to life. Yeah. That's how they happen. And so we have to respond to that. Like as content creators, I don't know why I'm saying we in there, you, <laughs> you, Eric, um, um you, you have to you have to respond to that. Yeah. No, I mean I also think um there's also, you know, we've also kind of hit a point where there's really no avoiding the political. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like you Everything's talk, political. Like you talked – well, so like – and I think getting back to like your point about like day after tomorrow, one maybe a way to distill what you're saying is that you couldn't just write a story about, you know, climate change happening in some dramatic way at a specific moment and then like – because that – in a way, is almost apolitical, right? Like there's yeah. no – but like what would have to happen is there would have to be this element of – like to say that is a political statement. To write a book now that features um, ramifications of global warming, um, it can, you could say that it's true, but it's definitely political now. It's still a political all statement. The things, all the things that we um, used to think were givens are now – they're now politics. And the truth is they were always politics. And I think one thing – that is changing is like just our concept of what the discourse even is, you know, like it's no longer this, these compartments of, um, you know, well, now I'm just writing a story and now I'm talking about politics and politics isn't something that you can talk about at the dinner table and all this kind of stuff. And like the truth is 
everything is everything. In the 24-hour news cycle, it's like everything is political. There's no turning it off. There's no turning it off. And like, and that goes for writing your stories now too, I think. And at least it will in a way. And it, obviously that's going to depend on different genres and stuff. But it gets back to your original point, which is that every book you read is in contact, is in conversation with every other book you've read. There's no um, – you can't rid yourself of the context you're in. Unless you're when, unless it's in a drawer, no one ever reads it. Well, sure, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like there, and there's just so much noise, and you see it on the on the nonfiction side too. Like we're talking a lot about. Yeah, um, tell tell me about the nonfiction side. Well, I mean, I don't know if that I have some super developed point on it, but I do think that um, you know, one thing you'll see happen is that these kind of centrist, um, you know, got to hear both sides. Everybody's got an equal seat at the table. These books. That have come, that kind of dominate the um, political book landscape. You know the bio, the even-handed biography of the president, or the um, you know discussion of whatever issue. You know by some like really vaunted you know New York Times person who's like treated as like a um, you know really even-handed and fair to everybody. You know like that that I think is going to go away. <laughs> really? Yeah. No. I because I think that there's no we kind of live in an era where. Um, You've got to push a little on your – like you've got to say if, – if you want to get heard, you have to say something. And it's like you can't – like even-handedness is no longer – like it's it just gets drowned out. So I say to my authors when I, when I ask them about – you know, and this can be for any book. When I ask them about who their audience is. Yeah. Um, the answer has to be more specific than everyone. Yeah. yeah. Right? It, yeah. It, because, because here's the thing. A book for everyone has an audience of no one. Yeah. And I feel yeah, like that's a good point. in 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 a time now that everything is politicized and everybody is like being bombarded with their own bubble again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. um, over and over, by not saying anything, by like staying in that middle and being even handed, yeah. as it were, yeah. is kind of a a modern take for trying to get everybody. Yeah. And in in a book for everybody. Has an audience of no one. Well, especially now that nobody really is interested in the middle of the road. Yeah. Right? That's fair. Like most people's viewpoints at this point are pretty, um, you know, they're pretty far in one direction. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's left, right, up, down, like depending on, you know, <laughs> just like whatever it is. It's just like, you know, this the center in this era where everything is presented and packaged as entertainment and a story. It's like the center is the most boring place to be. <laughs> I mean, um and so i don't know like the it's <sighs> is it weird that i'm kind of excited to see where books are going to be going well sure i mean it'll be interesting and it's going to be necessary but well so um like one thing i think about you know i was thinking about like speculative fiction today mm-hmm. because like um we all have loved in our own ways to use speculative fiction as a means of means of explaining the age, which I think is so interesting, right? That no one ever turns to, or not as loudly or as frequently, turns to realist fiction to explain the real world, mm. right? That like is with, a really good point. Like yeah. when these things happen, you turn to the stories that have nothing, you know, you turn to all the ones we've always talked about. You turn to, you know, Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, all the ones that people wrote a million pieces on like Slate for, you know? <laughs> and, and like, it, have our everybody knows about it or and like, everybody read, yeah. Or like um and I guess like House of Cards or like, you know, The West Wing or like these, you know, some of these shows that 
um, you know, are, I guess, really specifically aligned with the topic at hand, you know, they tend to get used to. But um, I I was kind of thinking today about, like, where speculative fiction is headed because, like, Mm. we're in the speculation. You know, like we've everything. It's it's kind of what I was saying. Like, I feel like a lot of dystopian fiction is a cautionary tale. But most of those things, in a way, it's like we're we're sort of there. And so speculative fiction is going to have to do something else. And it kind of got me thinking. And I read a piece today that I thought was really, really good. Um, It was it's by a woman named Jill Lepore. Um, It was in The New Yorker. Um, And it's called A Golden Age for Dystopian Fiction. Um, But she kind of talks a lot in here about. How just kind of this, that in a way, dystopian fiction is sort of uh, starting to fall a little flat just because mm. it just it's just not up for the needs of what we have. <laughs> and so it got me thinking, like, well, maybe where we're headed, you know, the thing worth speculating about now that we don't live in a world that is like it is utopian fiction. You know, that actually sounds it's, really nice. Well, you know what? I, well, I mean, who knows? I mean, it sounds fine because it's an opposition. But like, but really, though, like maybe the radical thing to speculate about in your novel is less the big, dark, scary, um, you know, doom and gloom and more the like, well, what would maybe the more radical thing to write about the trickier pull off certainly is to like show some vision that like seems eerily plausible of like a future that works, Mm. you know? And I think that that's going to be, um, I don't know. Like, I'm really interested in the coming utopian novels. Maybe that's yeah. what I'll say. And I don't even know what that looks like because when was the last time you read one? You know what I mean? You know it's, what? It's, I, I, think, I, I think I could argue that, like, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mendel was yeah. kind of utopian. Because, I mean, yeah, everybody died in this big virus. But, like, the whole, <laughs> but the whole point of this is, yeah. like, the after, right? Yeah. And the whole point yeah. is that, like, the yeah. main characters in this yeah. are making connections and they're traveling and they're performing Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, if that's not beautiful, yeah. I don't know what is. Sure. And, like, you know, we're going to get a, we're going to get people, you know, asking us about this and one point they'll make I think that is a good one is that um you know things are still happening and it's not as though we are suddenly you know we are literally not in the handmaid's tale we literally aren't in these kind of dystopian futures so what I'm th- what I think I'm speaking about more than like literal events which I think are less important in the terms of how fiction is going to be shaped mm-hmm. is the feeling and people there's no denying I think right now that people feel a certain way yeah. people feel the way they would feel when they read the dystop- when they imagine themselves in the dystopian novel of their choice, right? I think people feel and, strong. even if they're not, and they're not in yeah. those, they're not in those novels. Like that's the that's a very key distinction on a literal level. They're not like they're in the real world, but like that feeling and that yeah. you know that sense of you know like we just kind of list it out. You know the nihilism, the paranoia, but just also the, but also like it, the personal strength. Like yeah. I can change things. I can make a difference. Well, I can do this. Right, and that's one of the that's one of the key features of. Um, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like a specifically like a YA dystopian, right? Like, yeah, there's think, always something horrible, horribly wrong with the government, and there's only a teenager who knows that it's bad, and then they bring it down. But you have, and that so that gets <laughs> that gets <laughs> to another interesting idea: this idea of agency, right? And that's that yeah. is going to be a major theme that gets played with in some of these coming books, I think, because one thing, and this is going to sound depressing, is that it turns out that you really don't have that much of it. <laughs> But when you um, and four thousand like, people get oh, exactly, together, oh, exactly, yeah, you no, do. and that you get you can get into ideas of you know solidarity and things like that, which are I think are very powerful. But you, the individual, you know, it's not going to be one person with some hero story with this stuff, right? Like it's it's not going to be because you 
don't matter. Yeah. And this in that in that specific. It's going to be The Force Awakens and Rogue One (laughs) and Episode 4. Like, it's it's going to be all of those together. No, I just mean, like, the idea of, um, you know, the hero. I think we're going to see the hero narrative be really – it's going to have to change a little. And I'm excited. I mean, I don't say that as, like, you know, um, like – Honestly, the chosen one narrative is so tired. I'm excited to see sure. like a ragtag group of people yeah, join like, together. It's gonna and be groups. Do it's gonna be um because your agency, like we've been kind of told that it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You know, we kind of live in an era where a lot of people don't have the same agency as others, like in a lot of different ways. And it's like you can be whatever hero in your mind that you want, and that doesn't mean you're gonna be able to get away from the systems that have made it so that you don't really get that much of a say, you know? And it's I don't know. Like, I think there's going to be some really interesting um, protagonists. Like, even just the idea of, like, a protagonist, right? Changing, yeah. Like, a protagonist is a person who's able to kind of behave in space, and it's like, well, now we kind of – I don't know. Like, there's obviously a lot here, but <laughs> – Well, I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, we're going to be continuing to think about. And you as writers and as readers should be thinking about it too. And if you find a really good current novel – yeah. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like in closing, like for me, when I think about, okay, so how are people going to capture this moment? Because this moment is here and eventually in some form um, we'll see what it looks like. Eventually we will enter into a space that isn't this one, right? Like what I hope gets captured, like the feeling that I think – that some novelist, you know, the voice of a generation, so to speak, in whatever form that takes and whatever genres there are, um, I just hope that they capture just that fraught sense of overstimulation mm. in all the things that come with it, you know, the feeling that um, you're tr- you got to pay attention to 18 different things at once. And the, the reason f- why there are writer's retreats in uh, the middle of <laughs> exactly. nowhere in Alaska. <laughs> I need to go talk to Brian. <laughs> Brian and I have some conversations to go have. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I guess okay. like, and you know, we kind of just threw some pain at the wall here because that's all we can do because all the basic forms of causality are, you know, they're kind of getting chucked out the window right now. But you know right what? Now. Who would we be if we weren't throwing pain at the yeah, wall? Exactly. I mean, you have to. <laughs> anyway. So let's, let's, let's bring it on home with the pub tip. Sure. Um, and I guess it kind of fits in its own way. I'll make it fit because I'm a good radio host. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea of outlines, right? Most people, how do you put it? You've got like some dichotomy between oh, the two yes. types of fiction planners. Okay, so there are plotters. Uh-huh. Those are people who use outlines and yeah. they, they plan everything in advance. And then there are pantsers. Pantser. Pants. <laughs> who write by the seat of their pants. Okay. So the idea we were kind of talking about is that the plotters, you know, the people who try to map out their whole stories, and I'm probably like this when I write um, for the most part, um, it can lock you in. Right, like if you get your outline going, what always happens, at least whenever I try to outline anything, is you you start writing all the things you've mapped out, and then suddenly you want to change something, but you kind of feel locked in. And I guess the key to me is just like keep your outline breathable. Yeah. Keep your keep your be willing to just change things and scrap things at all times. Like, and then also you know as you write, don't be afraid to write something that you're almost certain you're going to end up having to scrap. Because that like, might get you to somewhere. Because else. sometimes you've got to. Sometimes you've got to write. You know, you got to to write to the writing. You know, like there's some stuff that happens. You know, that you've just got to kind of get out of your head, even yeah. if it's not the right thing. And so, like sometimes that what I, the point here is that like the danger of outlining 
can be trying to, you know, regiment yourself into a lack of kind of creative leeway in your own story. Yeah. And it's like even as intimidating as it sounds for someone who likes to plot everything out, give yourself room to pants. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, even if you're halfway through writing your book and then all of a sudden you realize something is horribly wrong, instead of trying yeah. to figure out a way to fix it, just like scrap it. Yeah. And and rewrite your outline. Like that's that's a thing. As you know, I talk with a lot of writers who think that once they've noodled through everything, mm-hmm. then they've done the work. Yeah, so that's the, all the execution, yeah. Um you know, and and that's that's not true. I mean, that's that's why the plotter pantser debate rages on. <laughs> you, is... know, you know what I have um, to alleviate that fear as someone who who likes to plot is I have this word document that I never even ever reopen or reuse. But anytime I need to make like a giant cut or like I've determined that like these ten pages are garbage and need to go, um, I just like copy and paste them and put them onto this other document and then delete. And it just like gives me the feeling that if I still want them, they're still there. <laughs> and even as I like never ever look at those, you end up never wanting to look at those words again. They're but, awful. But like something about them not like having written all that, spent all those time writing those words and having that effort like not being totally gone. To me, it's kind of like freed me up. So maybe try that if you're like really like worried about having to like backtrack and stuff. Yep. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for joining us for this, our 33rd episode Mm. of Print Run. Remember, our query show goes live June 8th. Writing by Reading debuts on the 15th. Send us your queries and first pages at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.